Hello everybody, Dr. F. Scott Field here, and I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor. The NPTE Final Frontier is the review course that I wish was around when I took the board exam. For those of you who know my story, it took me a handful of times to pass that exam, and quite frankly, I really wish I had an, a, an exam review course around, uh, just like the NPTE Final Frontier. Uh, check out their website, npteff.com, and use the code HET at checkout for 10% off to all of our listeners and fans. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Field, and I've got with me today a very special guest, a young lady who started a conference that is growing year over year, Rajam Bruce. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your educational journey and, and where it's led you to w- uh, what you're doing today. Well, thanks a lot for having me on, Dr. Phil. I really appreciate it. It's kind of a long journey, I guess, but I'll try and keep it short. <laughs> Basically, um, I spent some time in my 20s just living out in the woods and hitchhiking for like four and a half years and decided that, well, there was twofold. One was if I wanted to get back and live in society, I wanted to do something where I could make a difference and not just be another cog in some kind of wheel. And then also I chose massage therapy because I thought you made a lot more money than you did. And so I thought I could do a little bit of work, contribute to society and then save up all this money I'll be making and get a sailboat and do some more traveling. So, but what happened was I ended up being very interested in manual therapy and I was really fascinated by, you know, I was getting these clients coming in who were just tight and super tense. And then after so many sessions, they're softer, they're more relaxed, their faces are more relaxed. And I became really curious about why is massage helping them? Because I don't know, I don't, I wasn't buying much into the whole idea of, releasing tissues and that sort of thing. You know, as a kid, I spent a lot of time at the grocery store poking my fingers into the, you know, the meat department, you kind of poke your fingers into the the plastic wrap. And so that's what massage kind of reminded me of. And I was like, how is that changing these people's lives? I mean, their pain is improving. They're able to get back to what they enjoy in life and such. And so it just you know, after about, I was in the profession for about 16 years and I went from like be, you know, believing in all kinds of things like uh, homeopathy. Right. And so what got me interested in uh, wanting to learn how to understand research is I got into an argument with somebody like a real argument, you know, academic version of what an argument is about the efficacy of homeopathy. And they convinced me I was wrong And also convinced me about the importance of being able to understand research. So that kind of started, you know, that journey. Then I started looking more into that. And then I read um, Norman Doidge's book, his first book, The Brain That Changes Itself. And there are some issues I have with, you know, his second book. But that's what got me on, like, thinking about the nervous system and the brain. And then I read The Sensitive Nervous System. And then, you know, and and then on from there. And then I was started hosting workshops because I didn't want to do massage indefinitely, but I, but I wanted to still be able to contribute to community and, and help make things better. And so I thought, Oh, I can organize workshops. So I had organized a couple and I had one that was a a massage therapist and physical therapist. And it was a Barrett Dorco. I don't know if you know who he is. Um, He's not around so much anymore, but he taught something called simple contact 
And during one of the breaks, he had asked the students, you know, what are you learning in your PT programs? Are you even learning about, you know, Patrick Wall or Melzack, this and that? And then somebody said, you know, well, we are, but we don't know how to apply it. And that's when I got the idea of the sun. And that was like, I always say this, but it was the biggest light bulb moment I've ever had in my life. And I, and by the way, I like you call me young lady, cause I'll be 49 here in a couple months, <laughs> but, um, so I thought, well, organizing a conference can't be much more than a workshop, but bigger. And initially the conference was supposed to be more about like demonstrating how to turn pain research into clinical applications. And it's just kind of morphed into now more about the patient, you know, being patient-centered or person-centered and there's things like um, creating a therapeutic alliance and learning to listen. Those are also clinical applications of pain research. And those are things that really I've noticed aren't being addressed in other conferences so much. So I thought, well, this will be my little niche. Um, you know, so that's how that goes. And the 2023 will be the 10th, the 10th San Diego pain summit. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, like I said, it, it, it it started out, you know, from your idea and it's grown year over year. I, you know, it, like I said, it, it's kind of become one of the best kept secrets uh, in the country as far as, you know, continuing education goes. And I'd like to, you know, change that aspect a little bit because again, pain is a huge, huge issue, right? I mean, not just in the U S but worldwide, right? Pain is, is such a, a big thing. And I think, you know, let's, let's maybe start a little bit by just talking about like the definition of pain. Let's just give us, give our audience a little bit of your, your view and vision on the definition of pain. Well, I actually like, so I had a speaker named Michael Ray. Uh, he's a chiropractor and he spoke at one of my, when I moved virtual during the midst of the pandemic. And I really enjoyed his talk. He brought up, why do we need to have a definition of pain? Right? So and of course, as human beings, we have to define what we see so that we can talk about it. But I really liked the point he brought up because how do you define pain? Like what it's so, indiv it's an individualized thing. And it's so, and it depends on like your worldview, your cultural upbringing, um, society, the way says, I mean, there's so many variables that it's like, how would you define pain? So I really liked what he had said about that. But then on the flip side, I also understand it is human nature to want to define and put names and definitions to things because that can help us talk about it. But to tell you, I just, I actually, I don't have a definition of pain. I mean, I think yeah. everyone knows what it is when it hits. <laughs> right. Exactly. I think that, that no may be the best definition. You just know what it is. I mean, when it hits you, you know, <laughs> you just um, know when you have it. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's good, you know, for context, but especially, you know, when it comes to reimbursement and insurance, you know, when, when, when it comes to those kind of things in the medical field, um, which is really unfortunate that a lot of those are, are what's driving some of these, these um, issues. But, 
you know, insurance companies, uh, Medicare even, right? Medicare asks for a pain scale, zero to 10. And, and I can't stand that. I, I think it's, uh, well, there, there's many reasons, but I think, you know, even just bringing somebody's attention to it when it's not there to begin with could be, you know, detrimental. So the fact that Medicare is, you know, demanding that we get a pain scale and it be on a zero to 10 is just, you know, ridiculous to me. But actually, you know, just a, a point on that. Um, there was a talk by Dr. Katherine Schottmeyer at the 2019 summit, and she actually brought up the point that they actually don't really require it, but it's been perceived that they require yeah. it. And so everybody, um, you know, I mean, I, to be honest, I don't know a whole lot about insurance or accepting insurance, so I can't talk much on that, but it was an interesting talk. And I guess in the VA system where she works in Northern California, she's actually gotten them to stop using it. That's nice. And it took her a long time and a lot of work. And she may be somebody you might want to reach out to sometime in the future to talk Absolutely. about that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because again, even, you know, even if it's not required, but it is perceived that it's required, then again, we're still, you know, having to go to that question. We're having to turn back to that. And, and, insurance companies want to see progress and that could be a way to show progress. Like, Hey, the patient started an eight out of 10 after a bunch of treatments. Now they're down to a two out of 10. So that shows progress, right? Does it? Yeah. That's Maybe. what she mentioned too. Maybe yeah, not. I went with a friend to a hospital once um, to keep her company. And I've been fortunate not to have to have a lot of hospital visits myself. So I didn't realize what a problem that was, but it, literally every a nurse came into her room probably every 30 to 45 minutes and we were there for probably four or five hours every single time the very first question out of the mouth what's what's your pain on a one to ten and you know by the third or fourth time I was tired of hearing that crap you know and I wasn't even the patient in pain and, and in distress my friend was but I was just like oh my god again yeah, <laughs> yeah that like I said I'm not a huge fan of it but Let's talk a little bit about the summit now. Let's let's dive into this. Uh, first off, let's just talk about you know structure and and all that goes into it, the behind the scenes and stuff. You created this thing from scratch. Tell us a little bit about what it's like creating a summit. What it's like putting this thing together. It's actually it doesn't seem too difficult until I start talking about everything I do. <laughs> I, the first conference I did, actually, I still had my full-time massage practice uh, when I did the first event. Um, and then I decided I would just go spend more time just working on the summit. After the, I actually didn't even plan to have more than one. I was just going to do the one, but it seemed to do well. So, um, And I'm also really privileged in the sense that uh, my husband's income takes care of us and we live in a home that his family owned. So I don't have to worry about making a living or, you know, making a whole lot of money. Um, but everything I do is spread out over the year. So it's like, you know, I do the website, uh, the SEO, which is, it's good that one of my side, something I really love is marketing and I do really enjoy SEO. So, um, that kind of, it's not a problem that I've had to learn that stuff. Um, and then there's the, the choosing the presenters and sending out, you know, asks if they would like to, to speak and then getting that organized. And then of course, applying for the continuing education credits, um, you know, getting together everybody's stuff, like their, their CVs, their titles, synopsis, you know, everything you need for continuing education, 
you know, creating the registration forms, keeping everyone's information on a spreadsheet. So I, you know, and have everyone on the email list. And so those are things that, so it is a lot, but it's kind of spread out over the year. And, um, and then of course the event itself, what's going on in the event. I spend most of my time actually answering emails <laughs> during the event. And then afterwards it's creating all the certificates and, you know, that sort of thing. And, and the thing is, there's actually a lot of soft, there's software that will manage a lot of this stuff, but I actually can't afford it. So I have to do a lot of it myself, which is fine. Cause again, it's spread out, uh, you know, over the year. Yeah. I don't think people realize how much work goes into an event, you know, event, event planning is, is, is huge. It's a lot, even, even if it's just for a one time a year conference or a summit like this, it's, you know, it's massive. So when you think about some of the, you know, larger conferences, the annual, you know, like APTA, CSM, their combined sections meeting and things like that, just thousands and thousands of people going to these things. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of coordination. And people have, have commented to me, like how well organized the summit is compared to other larger conferences. And I'm like, yeah, because I do only max of 250 people, you know, and it's just me. There's not all these committees that I have to get in touch with and hear back from. And, and just something real quick. That's funny. When I got the idea to have this conference, the first thing I did was Google what makes conferences suck because I thought, well, what's, what's the worst thing people hate about conferences? And then I can avoid that. that. Yeah, you'll be fine. (laughs) And then I'll start from there. (laughs) Well, let's do a little bit deeper dive on, on pain and and how to kind of implement some of this stuff and and some of the like big takeaway messages, because I mean, I've always been a big fan of Lorimer Mosley and David Butler, you know, those two guys kind of helped me reframe my vision and, and view on pain. Um, I, I do find that a lot of the pain science people, though, especially in the physical therapy world, tend to perseverate on pain science. They like to educate and go down that, that you know, root of, of treatment, if you will, or, or education, whatever, you know, however you want to label it. They go very deep and very heavy into the pain science stuff. And, and to me, you know, I love the pain science stuff, but I also think it's, it's kind of a small portion of the puzzle. So, you know, talk, talk to us a little bit about, you know, the importance of pain. Uh, I see you're wearing your biopsychosocial shirt today. That's perfect. Uh, it, you know, talk to us a little bit about how pain fits into the, the everyday patient and stuff, because, I, you know, you are making that shift, it sounds like, to more patient-centric and patient-centered care uh, and, and ideas when it comes to this summit. So, you know, what does it look like uh, for, for a patient, you know, when, when we're talking about pain and, and how does that fit into their everyday life? Yeah, first of all, I think pain, the word pain science is so loaded, right? But it's yeah. like, but that's what we're talking about, the science behind pain. Well, from what I find from the patient aspect, from the side of somebody who has, who has once lived with chronic pain, um, and also from running my massage practice, which did focus on pain relief, um, most most of the general public doesn't really care about all that stuff. You know, they just want to get back. I even had a client; all she wanted to do is get back. She loved washing her windows. She just wanted her shoulder to stop hurting so she could wash her windows on the weekends because it just brought her so much joy. And so I think from that aspect, 
now some do, you know, you, you kind of lay the ground, you, you kind of mention a few things and, and some clients will be like, oh, well, I would like to know more. I mean, I had one client and basically her whole session was just us talking about um, pain research and stuff. So it depends on the person, but I find the majority don't seem um, to care so much. And when it comes to online conversations, I think it can be difficult we tend to perceive things based on how we feel about things. So I notice if somebody doesn't like somebody else, anything that's said that reminds them of that person, they're just going to block to, um, you know, there's all kinds of things like that, right. That prevent good communication online. And another thing too, especially when I've thought about marketing the summit is that, so you have people who are, who are, in it. They're really interested in learning about pain research and how they can use that in the clinic to help their patients. Um, you have people who are on the fence and you have people who are like, I don't need any more education. I'm fine where I am. And the people on the fence can be, um, it can be easy to, to feel like we're being insulted that our training is being deemed as worthless. And what we're doing is, is worthless for our patients because we're not following these certain researchers or whatever. So I think that can be a turnoff too, when you're talking about this sort of thing. So there's like, it's like a diamond. There's just so many facets to, um, you know, to all of it. So I don't even know if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, no, I think so. I think, you know, it, 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 the first step is, it's, like you said, it's different for every patient, right? Some really want to know about it. Some don't, you know, some need to know about it. Some don't. I think, you know, just taking that outlook and real, real, like reading the room, really, you know, and knowing which patients would benefit from it and which ones wouldn't. I think that becomes a tough skill to kind of navigate. Um, And then, you know, from a bigger picture standpoint, I I think, you know, a lot of what we do as physical therapists, but, but a lot of medical professionals, you know, we try to eliminate pain, we try to get rid of it, you know, and, and the one thing that I've kind of learned over the years from from guys like Adrian Lowe, and, and, you know, some of the others out there is that, you know, it, pain is really just a signal, you know, it's, it's, it's telling the body that, hey, something's, something's up, we might want to address it, you know, it could be really bad, and we need to take care of it immediately, or it could just be, you know, a little heads up, you know, so I think it, it is so multifaceted and it's tough to really hone in on how much you need to push in and how much you need to back off, you know, so it, it's an interesting kind of, you know, take on things when, when you really take a step back and look at that 30,000 foot view and look at the, uh, you know, entire patient, um, because then we even have patients like the, like athletes, right, where it's like, oh, no pain, no gain, I can just fight through it. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, okay, but you know, we could probably try to get rid of some of the pain. Oh, no, no, it'll be fine. I'll just, I'll just work through it, you know? And maybe they somehow enjoy it. You know, that's why I really like the occupational therapy perspective, which is what does the patient want? What do they want? Like, so pain is going to be affecting something that they enjoy in their life. What do they want to be able to do in their life? And let's focus on getting them to that point where they can do those things for their quality of life. And I really like that perspective because for some people who are going to have to just live with pain for the rest of their life, you know, maybe we can help them at least wash their windows or (laughs) whatever it is that they would like to do. It gives them joy. I'm a, I'm a lifelong New York Mets fan, so I must enjoy pain. You know, it's, it's been, (laughs) 
<laughs> many, many years of subjecting myself to that. So I get it. Like I, you know, some people just enjoy that pain. I get it, you know, but I think that's a very important point is let's get people back to doing the things they love to do and like to do and managing it. You know, it, it may not completely go away, but you know, if we can manage it, I think at least we get, you know, a little bit ahead of the curve there, you know, and, and we find ways to deal with it and still do our activities of daily living, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that's, I think that's huge. Well, Tell us a little bit then about, uh, you know, you've been doing this for 10 years now, right? What are, what are some of the big takeaways that you've gotten over those 10 years? What are some of the key points? Like if you had to give us like a cliff's notes of like just big wow moments, what, what are some things you learned in those 10 years? Well, I feel like you're probably asking like from the perspective of somebody who's maybe heard all of these great speakers. Yeah, we'll go, we'll go with that. I often, I often don't get to hear the talks until may, way later because I'm yeah. so busy doing other stuff. <laughs> Running it. <laughs> but I can't, what I have noticed as far as when it comes to what I can really speak on, um, because to tell you the truth, a lot of things that presenters have talked about, especially like Maxie, Dr. Maxie Machak, when she talked about the Therapeutic Alliance, um, there's a lot of things that have been talked on that I really felt connected to already. And I just didn't realize there was already a process for that. And there was already you know, a defined system for that. Um, so some things were just like, oh, well, that's why my clients were getting better. you know. Um, But what I've really been learning a lot is about building a community and creating a place where people can come. Um, And I know I've mentioned this before, but, you know, it's scary. It's there's a lot of uncertainty around saying I don't know much about pain. Right. So it's very it it can be common for us as for clinicians to think, oh, I know all I can do and I know this works and blah, 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 blah. But really, it takes getting rid of all that and admitting we don't really understand everything. Um, And I really wanted to create a place where people could come and and talk about that and be comfortable and not get ostracized or judged because that happens as well. Right. When you say, Oh, well, I don't know. I did not have a problem telling my clients. I didn't know when I didn't know something. And I remember bringing that up in a discussion group and people were messaging me like, what does that do for your business? Do you even get business? Are you even making money because you say that? And it's like, yeah, because people appreciate honesty. Yep. <laughs> but um, so, so having this place where like, you know, usually half the information on the stage is like research. And then the other half is like clinical experiences of what different clinicians have done with that research. And it's interesting to watch, like, sure, there's this information being given on stage, But when I've done a survey um, with everyone who's attended, uh, it was a a qualitative survey. And basically, people learn more about how to actually put the work to use during the breaks and the networking and the like the amount of connections that people are making during the breaks and the dinners that people have with each other it's pretty strong. So it's really interesting to see. Um, they're like, yeah, that information on the stage, it gives me like per- things to think about, but it's not, it's the discussions that happen between the talks that I'm like, oh, this is how I can do it. Or this is what clicks. Um, so that's been interesting for me. 
Yeah, I mean, I think some of the best conversations are had over a glass of wine, right? Uh, after 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 hours, you know, uh, we we take a you know a dinner or, or you know we go out with friends and we we sit there and we talk about this stuff afterwards. So I think it's you know it's super important to get to that point. Even you know, like I said, some of the other conferences I've been to, some of the most important stuff uh, that I've learned in networking has happened after the conference, you know, after hours. So I strongly encourage, uh, you know, people that are attending these conferences to go out afterwards and hang out with people and talk and, and have conversations and network, if you will, you know, because uh, it goes a long way. It really does. Yeah. It's been cool to see like, um, you know, people have collaborated on research papers based on their discussions at the summit. Uh, people, uh, Ben Cormack and Adam Meekins actually started a, a a radio a program together based on hanging out in the hot tub and <laughs> discussing things. So, and then also another thing too is um, one of my one of the panelists when I did the um, the patient perspective, um, the second I think you no know, he I had him on the first year, and he actually contacted um, the International Association for the Study of Pain and said, hey, I just participated on this panel and it was amazing. Why aren't you guys doing something like that? And so he and some another one of the um, panelists, uh, Joletta Belton, they did a panel at IASP and now there's GAPA, which is the Global Alliance uh, for Patient. It's like a patient um, centered that they're doing. So that kind of helped start that. And so I like seeing that the benefit is that it's spurring these things that are happening that are even more on a global scale. That's far more than what I can do. It's just one person. Well, I, I love that, Roger. I and mean, I, I appreciate your time and for coming on the show and to talk a little bit about the San Diego Pain Summit. But uh, we, we ask all of our guests this one final question. And that question is, if you could change one aspect of higher education, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? And when you say higher education, do you mean like PhD or, or just, or what? I, I think any, any sort of education you're pursuing, well, you know, we can go yep. anywhere from high school to, to PhD level postdoc stuff. I think uh, it all applies at this point. We're realizing that the system's been broken for a while. We're having to go back further and further to kind of fix it. So, uh, you know, open to interpretation, anything that you see in the educational system that's broken and needs to be fixed. Yeah, definitely um, critical thinking, which, so I have two answers, two responses. One is, I think that from kindergarten, we should start teaching critical thinking skills because that is such an important thing to have just throughout your whole life and not even in your work, but just in your personal life and just in decisions that we make. Um, and then as far as like, you know, as we get older and we enter these training programs to prepare us for our careers, um, especially in the medical field, definitely start getting people learning to communicate and to listen and being more person-centered. And that needs to be done in the schools because um, when you go when you go through a program, you're kind of you've absorbed everything in that program and we feel like that's everything there was right and so anything because i think there's a there's a bias there's a bias a name of a bias word i just can't think of it but it's basically the first time you come across a piece of information 
and you believe it, you tend to stick with that one because that was the first one you heard. And I think that's what happens when we go through school is that's what the information was we heard. And it can be difficult to change our minds when we get into our careers because that's what we were trained. So that has to be right. Um, so I really, a lot of this stuff that even gets talked about at the summit, it needs to really be in the program, education programs, I believe. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, I don't know how I got as far as I did. I didn't even <laughs> know how to learn until I got into my educational doctorate program, right? I was just like a rote memorization guy for a long time. And that is not learning at all. That's how our so, school program, you know, my yeah. husband is a history professor and that's how, you know, that's how the schools are set up. You, yeah. You're basically taught how to take a test. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. And then I think, you know, moving that further down the line, the soft skills, right? The bedside manner, the EQ, if you will, you know, this, this kind of social intellect of like being able to just have conversations and, and you know, the soft skills of being able to communicate, read the room, you know? So I think those, those are definitely huge. And I think a lot of caregivers and a lot of people in the healthcare world are good at that. Naturally, they want to do that. They're able to do that. That's just, it's inherent. But for those that it's not, it can be taught, it can be coached. You know, we just need to work on that and realize that, hey, not everybody has those skills, you know? Uh, you know, social, what is it, EQ? Uh, or, or Yeah, you know, EQ, uh, emotional, emotional intelligence. intelligence. Yeah, yeah and it, I agree. You know, I can just speak to that real quick. Um, mm -hmm. Before I was in massage school, to be honest, I just didn't feel a lot of compassion for people. I thought people were just all idiots. And um, so part of the, the benefits of choosing massage was that it helped me learn over time to be more empathetic and compassionate. So I definitely believe those things can be taught because if I can learn them, you know, so can other people. Absolutely. And even if, even if we've got them already, again, they can be improved. They can always be mm. better, you know? So, so it's definitely something that I think we, we need to try to incorporate into the school systems, even at a younger age, like you said. So, well, again, Rajam, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show and, and just kind of educating our audience about uh, all things pain and pain summit related. Where can people find you if they want to reach out to you online or on social media and find out more about the summit and, and what you're up to these days? Well, the San Diego pain summit can be found at um, San Diego pain, San Diego pain summit.com. And then there's also, if anyone wants to reach out, the, there's a contact form at, in the footer of that site. And then I am on Twitter a lot at San Diego summit. And then I'm on Instagram at San Diego Pain Summit, if you're curious about what goes on behind the scenes of everything that gets done for the conference. Um, those are the two I'm the most on. I, I was on Facebook a lot, but uh, since they changed their algorithm to AI, I just find it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But, uh, it, it is, it is something. And I know there's well, good discussion <laughs> groups on Facebook and so I'm not knocking that. So. Yeah, no, I mean, you, it, it, you get in what, or you get out what you put in, you know, you kind of have to search out what you're seeking for and, 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 you know, people that you want to chat with and, and do your due diligence to, to engage, you know, and, and find those people, your tribe, if you will. So, yeah. And I just wanted to mention real quick too, that there's a lot of free video content and also in the footer of the website. So, all the video um, I've, I've been offering virtual options since the first conference in 2015. And so right now you can watch 2015 through 2018 for free. And then there's also another um, couple talks that are pulled out for more recent events that are also can be found in the footer too. If someone wants to take a look and get a better idea about of what 
what we talk about on stage. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll put all those links in the show notes so that it's easy for you guys to get in touch. Rajam, again, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Dr. Phil. I appreciate it.